you are listening to The Janine Garner Show. Janine is a leading expert on leadership and driving influence through networking and collaboration, passionate about bringing brilliant people together to achieve remarkable results. Join Janine Garner as she shares insights, interviews and conversations, and let's together make the remarkable happen. Hello, hello. My name is Janine Garner and I am the host of this podcast, Unleashing Brilliance. A big hello to those of you that are joining me for yet another episode and a massive welcome to those of you that may be listening for the first time. Uh, Oh my gosh, the conversation that I had with Cameron Schwab was unbelievably uh, just insanely good. Um, this is a very honest, a very raw and a very vulnerable conversation from a guy who has worked in, uh, the area of, of high performance sports in the AFL, the Australian AFL for over 30 years. He is the second longest serving CEO in the game. He was appointed a CEO of the famous Richmond Football Club at the age of 24, which is made, made him the youngest in the history of the game. And what we talk about are some of uh, the most difficult and daunting challenges that Cameron faced whilst establishing a track record of building teams and organisations and unifying groups whilst navigating periods of genuine adversity and complexity. He is absolutely a legacy-focused leader who has bounced back from setbacks, taking on sport's most challenging leadership role, and he now uh, takes those learnings into the work he does with organizations around the world. He talks about, in this podcast, we discuss how leadership is hard, how it always demands more. Um, Cameron shares some key questions, three critical key questions. Gosh, try saying that. Three critical key questions that we all need to ask when it comes to how we are leading. And he also uh, shares quite openly the challenges he faced whilst uh, leading those organizations, those footy clubs, whilst at the same time battling with his own personal challenges around depression. This is a fabulous episode. Uh, So enjoy and I look forward to hearing from you. Please welcome Cameron Schwab. Cameron, welcome to the show. How are you this morning? Um, I'm really well, Janine, and looking forward to our conversation. I've got to love a good conversation, particularly with someone that uh, has spent the majority of their working life working with high-performing athletes. Yeah, and it's a it's an interesting now the transition into a world where people perhaps like the idea of high performance, but haven't necessarily got the appetite for high performance, and and perhaps that's a transition that uh, that I thought would come a little bit easily easier than what it than what it actually has, and able to take for granted some aspects of high performance, which in my case, the AFL, of which um, is just built into the environment, whereas I find in organisations outside of uh, that, that the obvious intent of high performance, you have to, leaders have to create that. And mm. it's, mainly, it's mainly because in, in elite sport, the competition sets the standard, really. You know, whoever's the best team, whoever's the best player, whoever's the best club, whoever's the fastest runner, or whereas in our own businesses, we have to, 
establish that standard ourselves and uh, particularly the leaders do. And, uh, and that's fundamentally the work I do is, is helping leaders try and establish the standard of which they can at least live up to each day of their lives themselves. Excellent. I'm going to cover that off shortly. But before before we go there, um, you tell me a little bit about you. So you're appointed CEO of Richmond Football Club at the age of 24, uh, which is pretty young now. For those of you listening international internationally, Richmond Football Club is in the sport of AFL. Can you can you in like a couple of sentences explain for our international audience what AFL is? Um, I've got my English version of it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a um, it's an indigenous code. It's probably for those in the states. It's our version of the NFL. It's um, it's a weird combination of sports, but it's actually the oldest in in lots of ways. The OCA of the Melbourne Football Club as well, and that was established in eighteen fifty eight. And so it's it's actually, and they wrote the original rules of the game. So it's the only sporting club in the world still playing at a professional level, the game that it created way back back in the day. And in the context of a relatively young country, we, we had a football before we had too many other things. And uh, and it is Australian football. It's the biggest game in uh, in Australia. Uh, we, you know, we play in front of very big crowds with our, you know, it takes up a disproportionate amount of uh, media time and talk time. And, and you'd probably know that if you, if you spend time, particularly in the southern states, that if you're... Uh, you know, the first question you're asked is is not the name of your kids or whether you're married or, you know, what what is your your religion? It's uh, what football team do you support? And uh, and the club of which I was the CEO of, uh, Richmond, has uh, has over a hundred thousand members. You know, so it's a, it's a big club by world standards, and uh, and plays in front of you know average attendances of between you know seventy and eighty thousand people at the MCG, uh, one of the great stadiums of the world, every every second week. So it's a it's a sport which is very much part of the the heritage. Uh, it's uniquely Australian, and probably uh, in in the way that you you could never you could never create a game like that if you started is one of the reasons why it's a very testing game to play to this very day. And and how did you end up becoming CEO at the age of twenty four? Yeah, it was um, look. It, it, a lot of the stuff is situation and circumstance, I suppose, uh, as much as anything. I grew up in a in a family which was very much into the sport. My you know, everything from my uncle umpired a grand final through to my cousin played in premierships at, at Hawthorne and my father was uh, was a, a prominent sports administrator. So I very much grew up with the game and so therefore probably the early phase of my career was, was fast-tracked somewhat because of that and I was in recruiting, so talent ID. So we have a draft system in, in, in football in Australia and, and my, my role was to recruit players uh, I was at Melbourne Football Club at the time and, and we made the finals for the first time in a long time and probably built a, a little bit of a reputation at, the, at that stage and I got a tap on the shoulder when I was watching a game uh, one day and it was um, from a board member at the Richmond Football Club who asked me whether I was interested in working there and I assumed he wanted me to do the recruiting and they said, no, no, we want you to be the CEO and you know, no one was more surprised than, than I was and and I had a conversation with with my father about it at the time, who was a, a prominent AFL administrator. And I, I remember him saying, "If if you take the job now, it'll be hard. If you take the job in ten years' time, it'll be hard. If you take the job in twenty years' time, it'll be hard." He, he said, "Because leadership is hard." And and he and he and he had enough uh, enough confidence in me, and perhaps more confidence in me than I did in did in myself. And I and I took it on and spent the next um, the next 25 years as, as CEO of, of three AFL clubs, uh, Richmond, Melbourne and Fremantle in Western Australia. 
and uh, and spent 30 years of my life working in the game that I loved and and built um, gave me the best and worst of times probably in, in many ways um, but I wouldn't I wouldn't swap it for anything so those words of your dad leadership is hard was he right yeah and it stayed with me forever and, and even now because I teach leadership or a system of leadership I don't, I don't know if you can actually teach leadership but I teach a, a way of leading or a system of leadership I think leadership's got to be ultimately quite personal but yeah I actually started with that I say well, well leadership's hard and one of the reasons why we often, you know, people talk of the imposter syndrome is at the very outset we're doing something which is difficult. And I think most times when you're taking on something which is very difficult, most days of your life, you're going to always feel a little bit short of the expectations that it perhaps has of you. And uh, and for much of that, you know, 30 years or 25 years as a CEO, I, I felt that. You know, I, I did feel that um, it was always going to be it was always going to demand of me something more than perhaps I had the capability of delivering on with the consistency that I would have liked of myself and and hence the lessons that uh, that I learned. Can you share uh, some of those lessons? You talk a lot about uh, over the course of those 30 years, um, you know, having to get through some pretty difficult and daunting challenges as part of that sport. Um, can you share some examples of the learnings that, you, that that you've experienced and you're now taking into your work now? Sometimes a story probably tells it as, as much as anything. I remember a day where I was I was in my car and I was I was driving to a meeting where I was, you know, my my role was I had to sack the the coach of Melbourne Football Club. His, his name was Neil Balm, and, and Neil's a was a loved figure in the club and a and he's a loved person in the game and he was also one of my childhood heroes he was I barracked for Richmond I supported Richmond when I was when I was young and he was one of our great players and so I found myself as his CEO uh, CEOing to his coaching and I was sitting at a set of traffic lights and uh, and there was at the corner there was a 7-eleven and there was a guy cleaning windows and and I remember looking at him and thinking, uh, I, I'd do anything to have your job today. You know, I, I would swap everything about my current life for your life right now. And I reckon he would be looking at me in my nice car and my nice suit and going into my nice office, probably thinking perhaps that of me. And then I went in and I had the conversation with Neil and it was one of the more difficult conversations. It's always hard to sack anyone, but when you when you're sacking someone who is going to you know it's going to dominate the news cycle for at least the next two to three days and and often longer, is there's a, there's another layer to the decision making, and obviously his family and everyone who gets impacted and affected by it. Um, but we had this wonderful conversation, and we sat there for hours and just talked. And I'm, I can't remember if we opened a bottle of wine or whatever, but we could have. It easily would have been okay for that to have happened. And then coming back and and sitting at those same set of traffic lights and the guy who was cleaning the windows was, was gone, but then having a different feeling at, at that point that, that, you know, that was something which in my own way I felt that I'd, I'd handled with the requisite courage that it, needed at that time and and I found out a little bit about myself and and probably 
in some ways forged uh, a relationship even deeper with the guy who I'd worked with for the previous couple of years uh, in a way which now has uh, a, um, a depth to it that I, I don't think it would have had we had we not have had the kind of conversation we had, and and that and as much as anything, that's a reflection on him. I, I get I get that, and and probably in some ways was a freedom for him as well because he he he's gone on and become in a different role, part of five premierships at two different clubs, and so in a in as a football manager, and and it might have opened him up in in a way which um, it, it mightn't have had we not have had the chat that we'd had, and. And so there was just within the within the um, the space of just a few hours, I, I'd, I'd basically lived the full spectrum of being a leader at that time, uh, as in questioning myself, doubting myself, um, not being sure about how I'd how I'd respond. Even even Neil's he's a physically a very big man. You know, even that element came into it. And um, but he he was he was wonderful, and uh, you know, twenty years later, we can still we can we know that we shared you know an important moment, and uh, and that's something which which I'm now grateful for. And how do you take that learning and those learnings over those thirty years into your work now, and what you're seeing is needed for uh, leaders wanting to build high performing. Firstly, I think the overarching sense, and it's how we started the conversation, is is it's always going to it's always going to challenge you in a way which you know you're going to be learning about yourself the whole time, and often because because of the profile of the roles that I had, people will often refer to decisions which may have been made, which had you know which were given a lot of coverage at the time, and it might have been the selection of a coach or the selection of a player or the sacking of a coach, sacking of a player. But, but, but they're not the times, they're not the things I remember or, or the things I reflect on. There's, there's no doubt there are things you'd do differently and choices you'd make. But the stuff I remember is is when I when I didn't show enough courage, you know, when, when I, I knew that the, the job that I had and, and the role that I played demanded a bravery of me of which I wasn't honouring at that time, and and I and I think about those about conversations I didn't step into into situations I, I didn't force when I when I perhaps there was part of me which said that I this is this is what I'm expected to do and I I knew in many ways I could actually get away with it as well because I was the only person who knew that. I also think about the times when my, my ego kicked in, you know, when when there was a, just a lack of humility in in the way that I went about it, and I think mainly because I was young doing it, but I reckon it was mainly in my mid-30s that I, I look at that period and say that it was way too much about me and I'd allowed it to be that and I'd surrounded with myself with people who allowed me to be that. And, and the third one is is when I got angry, you know, when I, when I allowed just my, my whether it was my competitiveness or a little bit of my temper or lack of self-control and, and often there are the three things in combination at, at different times. So, in the conversations I have with with leaders, is I say this is the stuff that you that you ultimately will be up for, and, and that's not the, that's not the things that are talked about often. It's the it's the, um, the people do negotiation skills, or they'll do you know, and, and I've I've done all that stuff, you know, where I had the opportunity of studying MBAs and going to Harvard and, and doing that. But I never felt that any of it really captured 
what was going on inside me, you know, each day I, I, I turned up for work. And, and so the work that I do mainly now is, is recognising that really as leaders we're, we're, we're fundamentally in, in the belief business. How, how, do we, how do we create belief? You know, how, how, do we, how do we establish and build a sense of belief in others in, in not only, you know, them personally but also the direction we're actually taking because we're ultimately going to be motivated by, by that. But really, how we maintain self-belief during times where you're going to be driving home at night and asking yourself the question: Am, am I stuffing this up? Am I making a mess of this? And and that and that happened often. You know, we'd, we'd be thrashed in games, or we'd lose five games in a row, and and, and I'd go home and I'd, I'd, I'd say to Cecily, my wife, I'd say, oh, I think I'm stuffing this up. You know, and 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 she would be very reassuring. And, and often, two days later, you just wondered why you even had that feeling. But but that was the the reality of that life. And so if you're going to lead, you, you have to be ready for that, you know, that you are going to, there's going to be part of you which is which is going to question yourself all of the time. So what are you building within yourself to enable that to happen, to, to allow that? And so the competency I now talk of, the most important competency is one of reflection. How, how do you realistically reflect at any stage just to make sure you, you, one, you stay safe if you like, and and secondly, that you you know you allow yourself to um, live those moments and understand that that's just the, the natural process. Mm. I love that conversation, Cameron. About um, as leaders, you, you you opened up our conversation by talking about leadership is hard and it always demands more, and consequently, often it is a lack of courage or our own self that gets in the way. And I'm sure there's a lot of people listening going, oh, my gosh, I can so relate to this. Um, with regards to this this piece around reflection, um, have, have you got an example of where that learning came from? You know, when you look back and you go, it was only through reflection that I realized that I had to lead myself better or uh, – improving my self-belief is there a specific example you use there to explain that for people well I was sacked and I think that's a big part of it you know that if you if someone walks into your office and and you're the person in charge and you know the the chairman of your board walks into into the room and says that you're no longer in charge and and you're no longer in charge as of now well if you're you can get angry, you can respond to it in all the ways that I, I talked about before, or you can actually, you know, you can look at it in a way which says, well, that hasn't happened by accident. That's not, you know, they, they, it mightn't be 100% fair, but it's not totally wrong, clearly. And so I, I then, even in when I'm working with leaders, I say, look, uh, ask yourself three questions regularly. And, and the first one is, you know, what does the role expect of me? Just, just a simple question. What does the role expect of me? And the role will have a technical expectation of you, a certain aptitude or, a, you know, a functional capability that you need to provide on a day-by-day basis. But it's also going to reflect or require of you a, an, understanding, an understanding of self that perhaps you did not have until that time because you're learning about yourself as you're trying to lead. So if you're not allowing yourself at least that moment whereby you say, okay, what does this really expect of me? 
And, and then the second question you ask yourself is, what, what do you expect of the role? Because if there's any incongruency between your expectations of the job and its expectations of you, well, that's going to find itself out at some time. And I spend, and even the work I do with the leaders is, I spend a lot of time with leaders who have spent a lifetime climbing a mountain and have got to the top and don't like the view. And and, the, and, it's, and it's demanding something of them. And they're not actually doing the part of their previous job that, in fact, they enjoyed. And they can't go back. And the third one is what what do I expect of myself? You know, that it's that if you if the role's costing you, you know, your well being, your relationship with your kids, your health, um, you know, and I've you know, and I talk quite openly about it that I've I I spent I've spent the last twenty five years with dealing in one form or another with, with clinical depression and, and I spent most of that time as a CEO of an AFL club walking in with you know, going to the Albert Road Clinic to see my psychiatrist, who I had a wonderful relationship with, and still do. You know, with a hoodie on, so no one recognises me, and knowing that that was probably, you know, that was probably in Melbourne, that was going to always be a big call. You know, in that sense. Mm-hmm. So I think the the out of the out, the one thing I worked from depression, if you like, the gift of depression is is what I call it, is that I, I worked out that I had to be far more reflective than than I ever understood that I was going to need to be, you know, because it was actually, you know, it was going to have, it wasn't just going to affect me, it was going to affect my family and it was going to affect everyone around me. And and I don't think there was a natural inclination up until that time for me to go deep from that perspective, but it was something that I I, I just laid up my learning over time and uh, and it's something which now I look back on as as hard as it was at the time and as difficult as it was and and we're still really getting our heads around it, you know, that, at that period. No one talked about mental illness at all. Mm. was something which um, I now look back on as a really powerful uh, personal learning experience which hopefully helps me support in an empathic way the the leaders I, I now work with. Yeah, because the that whole concept of uh, mental health and depression is so on the increase. It's it's frightening at uh, how it's impacting more people than we even can begin to imagine. What what before we sort of move on? What words would you give to people that may be in where in that place that you were in? Um, the, the, well, firstly, there is a way, and I think that's because often you don't feel that. And, and one of the the things that depressed people often feel is is a sense of hopelessness and um, you know the terrible amount of rumination and over whatever's going on. And I, I'm a great believer is that yeah, and it's it's a James Clear who wrote Atomic Habits. He he wrote that we don't rise to the level of our our ambition, we fall to the level of our systems. And so even like whilst there are times when, you, when you're not feeling well, if you're depressed, where you feel as though there's no reason to feel better, but hopefully that's not a permanent state, but that, that is a real state for depressed people, is that you there's enough clarity in all of this or support that you're getting through whatever your your support network is in my case really strong family and, and obviously you know professional support was to 
build a system for myself where I, where I, which I could then trust my system to help me get better. And, and that's through regular self-work. In my case, I use exercise a lot, uh, diet, uh, meditation. I'd like to get better at that. I make sure I manage my sleep well. Um, feeling and having a deep sense of purpose, I think, was probably the most important. And, and the danger for me in the work that I was actually doing is that it was a very volatile environment of which I was operating in and I did get sacked and so I relied too much on the sport to give me my sense of purpose and and hence when I was sacked in, in the role I had to find, I, I recognised that I needed to find another form of purpose and quickly and, and that can be that can be tricky. So the, the, and probably the overarching one is I recognise you have to be able to go deep to go forward and so therefore the self-reflection aspect of it and the systems I built for myself to enable that were going to be fundamental to my ability to to build a life beyond the game and 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 even probably when I was in the game as well. And so you've moved from the game. Thank you for sharing that, Cameron. You've moved from the game into now helping other leaders. Um, so what what is your purpose now with the work that you do? Yeah, to teach, I think. You know, I think there's a lovely honour in teaching. You know, so it's mm. it's teaching, and it comes very much from the lived experience. But I'm I'm not preachy about my experience either. I've got sport offers a, a wonderful metaphor for for performance because uh, it's obviously that's what its its core thing is, uh, and you can and people can relate to that to that metaphor. But also, the metaphor can get a little bit uh, overplayed. It's not. The sport metaphor of just trying harder is is often just colours what what what's real in elite sport and 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 I say to, to people that if you're involved in in a, a an elite sport environment, we think of it as system versus system, not team versus team or club versus club. So whoever's got the best system, and that's the the system which produces the best talent, which plays the best way, which forms the best teams, which creates the best cultures, all those sorts of things are the teams which which win premierships and they succeed. So if you bring that back to a leader and saying, okay, well, tell me about your system of leadership. How, how do you, are you, are you spending your life being busy or are you spending your life actually making a difference, you know? And and I think because the, the environments of which most people operate in are getting closer to sport in that they're becoming very noisy, that often they're distracted by by what's going on around them and, and the immediacy and the, the you know, if you gave someone an extra 20 or 30 hours a week, they could fill it with that busyness, if you like, without necessarily being prepared to take time out to say, okay, what does this role expect of me? What does winning look like? What do we need to be good at? What are we going to do? How will we know that we're on track? All, all the basic questions which just get lost because there's uh, thing emails pinging at you, or uh, or other noise, or you know there's a uh, you know the stuff that we're dealing at the moment with the coronavirus. You know what's real in all of this. You know how do we how do we manage our lives? What effect does it actually have? Well, well, when you're the leader, that sits with you, and 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 you have to take that responsibility. But the responsibility isn't just to make the call on your own. The responsibility is to say, well, I've got a lot of wonderful capability in the organisation, how do I actually draw the best from that capability rather than riding on my white horse and say, here's the answer, because you probably don't have it. 
Mm. Uh, and so, that, so it's actually building. So, can you come into the can you come into the room of your key people and and say, you know, I don't have the answer here, you know, but I'm confident that it's in this room. And and how how are we going to go about finding it? And uh, when most people in the room just want you to come in on your white horse, really, you know, that's what they're looking for, you know. Um, whereas you're actually coming back to them and saying, no, no, we can do much better work if we if we sort this one out together. Yeah, it's a, it's an ever changing landscape, but at the same time, all of these industries are seriously merging in terms of the expectation. Who um, who influenced you? Do you reckon who is the key person that influenced your approach to how you lead and live? Um, for both good and bad, my father uh, would mm. be would be right up there. Uh, look, I've got very strong parental influences and and strong siblings as well. You know, and, and we grew up. My, my parents were very young when they they were married. My mum was only sixteen when she had my sister, and oh. and so they, they they were doing their growing up really with kids, and 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 they and they divorced when I was in my teens. So that I had both of those experiences. You know, sort of a, an idyllic Australian suburban upbringing, and and then probably you know the the fall when it, when it proved not to be. Um, but my father was a very strong influence on me in terms of. Um, uh, belief in myself and my mother similarly would I remember she would always ask me to go deeper when if I said something you know it would be the classic kid coming home and you know they say this they say that and my, I always remember my mum saying well tell me who they are and how do you think they formed that opinion mm. and and my mum's an artist as well and, and I'm a practicing artist and and my father was a footy administrator, so so just in terms of deep influence there, I'm a football administrator who does art. So even even from from you know that basic uh, perspective, and, and then I had very unique opportunities because of the roles I played at a young stage of life to to work on a day to day basis with people who become the household names within the sport in that era. And Ron Barassi is a great football name here he was the he was my first boss you know uh, I, I worked with a guy Alan Jeans who's one of the he's a hall of fame AFL coach um I ended up doing the eulogy at his funeral and you know a wonderful coach by the name of Tom Hafey was around our house when I was a child so these are three and and I and probably I, I got to see their their humanity as much as I did you know the and cut through the um you know the the, ped- the pedestals, if you like, that uh, they were placed on, of which they felt almost embarrassed about being on, in in lots of ways. So they they had a wonderful influence, and so I'd, I'd say it would be certainly my mum and my dad, and um, and I've also got you know, my sister's a school teacher, primary school teacher, works with hearing impaired kids, and, and my brother's CEO of the Global Sports Union in Switzerland. So I've, it's it's been an amazing family, really, lots of ways. I can imagine the uh, the conversations around the dinner table with all those. Yeah, they were a bit feisty, and and it was, <laughs> and and that was actually part of the deal. Don't don't yeah. don't bring your A game. Bring your A game to dinner. You know, not not don't talk in um, don't talk in uh, platitudes about stuff. Don't talk. You know, that, and that's the classic one with my mum. If I had a view of something, she'd want to know how I'd formed that view. And, and that can be frustrating because when you're a kid, you just want to be able to, 
be the uh, you know the doyen or the the beacon of all fourteen year old wisdom, and uh, and mum's questioning that. You know, is that is that you talking? I remember her often saying, "Is that you talking, or is that someone else talking?" I'm giggling to myself because I'm literally, oh my god, this is my nightly dinner table conversations with my sixteen year old at the moment. Okay, maybe when he's sort of in his 40s and 50s, he'll look back and go, thanks, Mum, for always trying to put me right. Well, the, chances are he, the chances are he will, but as we know, and I, and I, and I, use, oh, the, and I use the parenting metaphor as, as a wonderful leadership one because, there's one, it's, you, you're emotionally so vested in it that you can actually, your own rationality can be lost in, in the conversation and, and also recognising that the puberty for all that it is is actually them finding their independence, you know, that, that you can go from I love you to getting the door slammed in your face within about 30 seconds. And, and, um, and if, that doesn't, uh, if that doesn't explain life and all its irrationality, uh, but, you know, the, the number one thing that we try to do as parents is, is get kids up to a level of self-responsibility and really even as leaders, that's what our job is. If we're, if we're, if we're dealing with anything other than 51, 49 decisions, you know, we're, we've become either a control freak or we've got the wrong people working for us. You know, that's, that's, you know, the, you know, that's the logic of it. And so parenting is going to test you more than anything, Will, as a, uh, as a, as a leader because of all your, because your own emotional attachment to it, you know, so, and our own fears and our own everything else which happens with it. You know, those nights where you're lying in bed going, I really should not have said that. Oh, my gosh. What are they nothing with me? (laughs) All of the stuff that you talked about at the beginning, your ego, your lack of courage, when you get angry, exactly the same with parenthood. So who's who's Cameron when he's he's not teaching, when he's not working with other leaders? Who's Cameron? I'd like to think of myself as... Uh, it's a crazy thing because even identity and all that, it, people say that, well, I, ident- I identify as a an artist. Well, it took me a long time to say I'm an artist, whereas I used to always just say I do art, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I ended up studying art full-time. So when I when I was sacked at Melbourne Football Club, I, I ended up going back to art school and or I did my – because I never did first-year uni when I left school. And so my first go at first-year uni was in my 50s and, and I was at art school with um, – we don't, there's first year uni students and then there's first year fine art uni students. There's even another dimension to it all. And, and it was an interesting time of life because I had my, my, my youngest, um, uh, my youngest kid was actually transitioning at the time. So my, 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 my I've got a transgender daughter, Evie, and, and she was, um, she was transitioning during that period of time. And I'm in the same class as, as, um, as uh, you know, another couple of kids who'd gone through similar experience, so I, I, they almost became my uh, parenting mentors during that time. And, and and I've often reflected if I didn't like, it's an unusual situation to find yourself in first year uni in your fifties, and then I'm in first year uni with a couple of transgender kids who are helping me with mine. And mm-hmm. it's um, it was it was, a, it was a great experience. So art's a big part. Well, I think communicating and art and um, digging deep into you know, storytelling and, you know, and, and but leaving also enough enough um, space in whatever your story is for for people to make up their own mind. I, I'd, I'd like to think that's that's something I, I enjoy and and probably at a stage of life now where that where I've got enough lived experience and and enough war wounds where um, you can you can say well yeah well the, I did learn something along the way. Mm, I think you did, and even in that 
quick story that you shared there. I mean, the leadership lesson is one of always being willing to learn. Um, and, you know, it's incredible how people come into your world. And if we can open our eyes and ears enough, they're there to teach. And uh, there's a few conversations I've had recently where that, that willingness to relearn is is as important now um Cameron we're often you know we often as you said you've lived life and you've got so many wonderful stories and experiences and things that you're now bringing into your work um what what do you want to be remembered for uh, for being decent I think because I know there are times when I wasn't mm. you know that I was too that my ambition was such that it that have got in the road of my decency. And it was, it was you know, what I mentioned before about ego and lack of humility and and, and probably just in, in, in my dealings with whoever it is that I come across that, um, that regardless of their situation and, and, and circumstances of their status or otherwise, that, uh, that I was always decent. And, um, and, and, and I just have three little three little things, even in, say, doing this, doing this podcast now, I just ask myself, um, can I back it up? As in what I'm about to say, can I actually support it, you know, through uh, an experience, you know, lived experience? Uh, I ask myself, is it is there some value in what I'm saying? Is, it, is there some importance or some, you know, uh, you know, some learning, whatever, whatever, however you want to put value, define value? And, and the third one is, am I being generous? You know, is it is it, is it generous in what in what we're saying? And I think if if it sort of fits into those three categories, and you give yourself a little mental tick, well, it's then something which I can share at this moment because you, you know you, you you've been generous enough to give give me this this platform. And the same way as if you find yourself coaching someone, or if you find yourself in conversation with someone, or you know, in in just in because people are attracted to you in some shape or form because you you played a role in the sport that they happen to love as well just just those things I think just being decent and mm. um, and you know sometimes being decent actually means saying look you know I if I'm going to be decent to you I need you to be decent back again <laughs> you know that's all I'm asking you know I'm, I'm not I'm not judging you here but you know I'm, I'm struggling with this conversation if you're going to be aggressive towards me or if you're going to be judgmental of me and without knowing me and so that's that's probably it Cameron I just want to thank you for uh, the honesty and the vulnerability that you have um, presented to the audience and through this conversation today um, to me that is leadership and um, it is exactly I feel grateful that there is somebody like you out there teaching what you have learned because that is really how we are going to change leadership organizations teams one bit at a time in answer to your questions can you back it up oh my gosh you so can back up everything that you have shared today have you added value you sure have the learnings are insane in terms of right back to acknowledging that leadership is hard um, sharing some of the areas where you admit that that you made mistakes as do all of us in terms of lack of courage ego kicking in and when you're getting angry and um, those, those three key questions that I think 
um, that people should be asking themselves in terms of what does the role expect of me? What do you expect of the role? And what do you expect of myself? And most importantly, um, the, the key piece around the reflection and the constant learning that is required of leadership. And have you been generous? You sure have. I have uh, taken up way more time than I planned, but our conversation was just, I just loved every minute of it. So thank you, Cameron, for being you. It's been an absolute joy to chat to you. And I know the listeners on this podcast are going to love everything that you shared today. Thank you so much, Cameron. And thanks, Janine. And thanks very much for, one, you know, putting it all together in the first place and the effort you make and giving people a platform to uh, explore um, and, and even even in the conversation today sometimes you have a reflection within a reflection you you're asked a question of which you thought about for the first time and, and that's definitely happened today so thank you for that opportunity great thank you Cameron oh where can people find you that's probably the key question that people are now going don't forget to ask Janine <laughs> how do they find you and my business is called Design CEO, just one word, design and CEO and, and designceo.com.au. And I've actually got on my, my website, there's a lot of videos and there's obviously blogs, but I've also got my artwork there as well. It, it took me a long time as part of that that thing of identity that we talked about before to even put my art. So that's all up there now. And um, and also, uh, you know, via LinkedIn, I think it's probably always the safest that uh, I uh, they're probably the, my my mechanisms for, for communicating. If anyone wants to have a chat about working with their teams or working with them as a leader, and and um, my goal always is to honour that opportunity. Thanks so much, Cameron. Thanks again. Cheers. Thanks, Janine. We hope you enjoyed listening to the Janine Garner Show. To follow her blog, purchase her books, or find out more, visit her website, janinegarner.com.au. Brilliant people, extraordinary results.